Thank you very much. Uh, I always love coming here because uh, the people in this congregation care about these questions, uh, and I don't have to generate interest, you know, as I would if I were talking to another group. And you do use the Heidelberg Catechism uh, in the, your instruction of youth uh, and so on, and I think that's wonderful. I, I love the Heidelberg Catechism. And I want to uh, spend uh, today and the next uh, uh, two weeks after this just going through some of uh, the, the deeper level of content that's involved in the doctrine that's at the heart of the Reformation, namely the doctrine that's known as justification by faith. Uh, as I go on today, I'll explain we need to, uh, a somewhat more uh, complicated phrase uh, from especially the Reformed tradition that our Presbyterian Church is a part of, uh, the Reformed like to emphasize a verse from Ephesians. I, I put it up on the board at one point, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And if you look at that verse, it, it says in there, justification by grace through faith. So that's a somewhat different emphasis. And instead of justification by faith, the emphasis is on justification by grace through faith. And that puts the emphasis on not so much on the response of faith on the human side, but on what God has already done for our sakes by grace. So the first act is grace, and the second act is faith. And I used the example last time of uh, thunder and lightning. Actually, if you think about it, although we have the, the phrase thunder and lightning, it's really lightning and thunder. You know, lightning comes first, and then thunder follows. So uh, faith follows grace the way that uh, thunder follows lightning. Uh, we could also say that about gratitude. You know, gratitude follows grace in the way that uh, thunder follows lightning. So uh, the, the two belong together, but they're, they're distinct. And uh, the first act is God's gracious act of grace that then brings forth uh, the response of faith. But uh, I, I want to uh, look at the Heidelberg Catechism with you. Uh, Jason is seeing if he can track down uh, a few more copies. Uh, maybe uh, if you don't have one in front of you, uh, you could uh, look on with someone. Uh, as I was uh, preparing for uh, today, uh, I, I noticed that question 56 in the Heidelberg Catechism seems to be the kind of preface uh, or general heading for questions uh, 59 through 64. So I'll be concentrating on 59 through 64, but uh, question 56 uh, is an important one, and, and I think uh, 59 through uh, 64 are really a commentary on this earlier question, uh, question uh, 56. So le let's look at uh, question 56 in the version of the Heidelberg Catechism that you have before you. Uh, uh, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? So at this point in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the, the teaching is tied to the Apostles' Creed, 
And one of the affirmations uh, at, at this point in the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. You know, I, I believe in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, uh, the Holy Catholic Church, uh, and so on. And then the forgiveness of sins is one of those affirmations. So here, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? And the answer, as we have it in this translation, says, I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, will never hold against me any of my sins, nor my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. And then it continues, rather in his grace, in God's grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. So this is the great affirmation of the Reformation. And it does distinguish uh, the Lutheran and uh, Reformed uh, Reformation from Roman Catholicism on the one hand. And uh, it depends, but uh, uh, not uncommonly, from other versions of Protestantism. So I, I want to look at what is distinctive about the Reformed view of justification, even to some extent uh, in contrast to the Lutheran view. Because Lutherans, uh, not so much in content or in principle, but in their rhetoric uh, following Luther, uh, tend to put the uh, emphasis on justification by faith. So Luther knew what he was doing. He, he wouldn't have denied by grace through faith. That would have been important to him. But rhetorically, he put a great deal of emphasis on faith. You know, that, that's where his mind went. You know, the, the righteous person shall live by faith. That was part of Luther's Reformation breakthrough. So he, he focused on faith and therefore on the human side, uh, on the side of the response. Uh, what we could call, I, I'm not uh, particularly happy with this way of putting it, but it makes it clear on the subjective side the human side, the subjective side, as opposed to the objective side, which is what God does uh, prior to faith and apart from faith. So if, if faith is that uh, uh, thunder in response to the lightning, lightning is the prior work of grace, uh, and faith is the response elicited by grace. So uh, the Reformed tradition wanted to make sure that God's action in Christ had the centrality, had the priority, and it wasn't just a matter of our faith bringing about a new situation before God and making us righteous before God. So if, if we say we're righteous by faith, that's a perfectly acceptable statement, but it needs to be interpreted. And it, it can't mean that our faith, all by itself, is what makes us righteous before God. So I've put this little sequence up on the board. Uh, uh, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. So justification by faith is really a shorthand for justification by grace and justification by grace through faith is a shorthand by just, for justification by Christ alone. So that puts the, uh, uh, the, the emphasis, the accent on Christ himself and on what Christ has done uh, as that uh, 
flash of lightning, so to speak. You know, Christ is himself uh, the one who embodies and represents the grace of God to us. So faith alone means also grace alone, and faith alone and grace alone mean Christ alone. And if we unpack it a little further, uh, faith alone means apart from works, apart from works of the law, Luther would say. You know, you know, the Lutherans, uh, you know, both, both the Lutherans and the Reformed would like to claim uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. You know, it, it, it doesn't belong more to the Lutherans nor to the Reformed or to the Reformed more to the Lutherans. Everybody wants Romans. But the Lutherans tend to uh, think about Romans in relation to Galatians. And if you, if you know the letter to the Galatians, there's a strong distinction between faith and works in Galatians and a strong contrast between faith and works of the law which could be uh, interpreted as works of love. So to say faith alone means faith alone apart from works. Faith alone apart from works of the law. Faith alone apart from works of love. You know, the Catholics find this puzzling. Why do Protestants want to uh, separate faith from love or justification from sanctification. See, sanctification might have more to do with works of the law or, or works of love uh, in our life here and now. Um, but uh, it's important that justification, which I'll define a little more in a moment, uh, justification takes place by faith alone, according to Luther and Calvin, apart from works of the law, apart from works of love, and then Grace alone puts a somewhat different uh, accent on it, not only apart from works of the law, but apart from merit. We do not merit the grace of God. There's nothing, uh, it, there's nothing in the uh, thunder, so to speak, that uh, brings about the lightning. You know, the, 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 the thunder is a response to the lightning, but the lightning doesn't require the thunder in order to be lightning. Grace doesn't require merit, doesn't require good works, doesn't require uh, something uh, uh, that is acceptable about us to God uh, apart from grace in order to be grace. So faith alone means apart from works of the law, apart from works of love, and grace alone means uh, apart from merit. We do not merit the grace of God. It's a free gift. Uh, and that's, that's the good news of the gospel according to the Reformation. But even faith alone and grace alone can't be fully understood or rightly understood apart from the centrality of Christ. And if you read the Heidelberg Catechism on these questions, if you read uh, question uh, uh, 56 that, that we're starting with, and then go over and see how it gets interpreted uh, in 59 through uh, uh, 64, you'll see that if you, if you read carefully, Christ is central to, to the answer given to all of these questions, but it's not as explicit as I want to make it. So I'm going to try to make explicit what's implicit 
in the Heidelberg Catechism by making explicit a little more than the wording does. It's, it's, a, it's a question of the difference between rhetoric and content. The content is Christ-centered, but the rhetoric, the way in which it's set forth, you know, the, the statements that we have, is not as obviously Christ-centered as it could be. So I'm going to try to lift up this structure of Christ alone, grace alone, and faith alone, and see how it's in the background of uh, these questions from the Heidelberg Catechism, even though uh, it's, it'll be more explicit in my interpretation than it will be in the, the way the words go uh, in, in the Heidelberg Catechism. But notice here, in, in 56, first of all, there's a reference to Christ's atonement uh, when it comes to uh, the forgiveness of sins. And then there's a reference to the righteousness of Christ, which frees me forever from judgment. And this happens. See, there's, there's, I mean, I believe that. Uh, so there's the element of faith. But after that, it, it's Christ and grace. Rather, in his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ. So uh, it's a very deep statement. By grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ. I have no righteousness of my own. I, I turn to God again and again with empty hands. But in Christ and because of Christ, I, the believer, the church, the faithful, we have all the righteousness we will ever need in order to be acceptable to God. So the background belief here is that uh, we cannot enjoy eternal life in communion with God if we are sinful. We cannot enjoy communion with God uh, if we're blemished or flawed or corrupted, is a stronger word actually, corrupted by sin. Sin is a kind of corruption of, the human, na of human nature and God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. But Jesus says whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin, and that implies that wrongdoing or sinful actions reflect some prior uh, disorder, some prior state of being, some prior state of corruption. You know, St. Augustine called it uh, status corruptionis, you know, a state of corruption, which is different from the original uh, creation of, of humanity, which was without sin. God didn't create us in this corrupt uh, situation, but through the fall into sin, all human beings now uh, suffer uh, under this uh, misery of sin, and we are all responsible for uh, the, the sins that we commit. Uh, sin, by the way, is not just a moral category pertaining to how we treat other human beings. It's primarily a spiritual category. It primarily has to do with our relationship with God. So th there's something about our condition that makes it impossible for us uh, on our own to enter into fellowship with God because uh, of our sinful nature and not just our sinful actions. Uh, last time I, I referred to the imagery of the tree and the fruit, which Luther and Calvin uh, also both uh, 
looked at, uh, taking it from the teaching of Jesus, when they wanted to make this point that uh, a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. And if you have bad fruit, if you have sins, it implies that there's something wrong with the tree. It implies that condition of sinfulness. But that condition of sinfulness is what creates the great barrier, the great obstacle between uh, us as human beings and the whole human race and God. If there's no way of removing our sinfulness, then we cannot uh, have eternal life in communion with God and would be cut off from God eternally. So God, by grace, in the history of the covenant, as fulfilled in Jesus Christ, has taken action uh, to save us from our plight, to do something for us and on our behalf that we could not possibly do for ourselves because we are in this condition of being bad trees that produce bad fruit, you know, that we are sinful. So the opposite of sinfulness is righteousness. And the idea of righteousness is at the heart of the reformational teaching. And look, it's right here in question 56. Let's look at it again. I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, will never hold against me any of my sins. I mean, this, I mean, if you're in on what scripture has to say to us, if you're in on the biblical message, this is astonishingly good news. You know, God will never, I mean, this is very strong language, God will never hold against me, and not just me as an individual, but me as a member of, of the, the believing community, as a member of the faithful. God will never hold against any of us, and therefore also against me who have faith in Christ. God will never hold against me any of my sins. Luther would say, past, present, and future. Any of my sins, past, present, and future. This is a departure from what is taught in Roman Catholicism. You, know, you, you kind of get a, a, a blank slate you know, after you come to faith. But after that, you have to keep undergoing acts of penance uh, to deal with uh, sins that you commit after you come to faith. So your future sins are not covered. Your future sins have to be dealt with by another sacrament, you know, a sacrament of penance. And they have to be dealt with in a way that involves some sort of cooperation between the faithful person and uh, the grace of Christ. And you can actually lose your justification in uh, Roman Catholic thinking. You can commit a mortal sin. And it depends on who you read. Sometimes it's almost impossible, as it seems to me, to avoid committing a mortal sin. Uh, and if you commit a mortal sin, you lose everything and you have to undergo some act of penance uh, in order to be restored to God through some other sacrament uh, of the church and so on. Uh, but a lot depends on what you do to contribute to the work of grace once you have been put in a state of grace. So that would be justification in the Catholic sense. You're in a state of grace. But you can lose that state of grace you know, partially or even completely if you commit a mortal sin. Well, you know, some mortal sins are pretty obvious, you know, like murder, 
uh, or you know, any of the obvious violations of the second half of the Ten Commandments, uh, murder, especially adultery, you know, theft. But uh, it, it could be more than that. Uh, and in any case, it doesn't cover all your sins. So the Reformation message here is very radical. Now, last time I, I handed out a chart that showed uh, a, a, a pie chart that showed world Christianity. Um, maybe, maybe you should make copies of that uh, again. I, I brought a couple more uh, with me. Uh, I, I, well, I'll bring more with me next time, too. But uh, there, there are more than 2 billion Christians in the world, you know, out of about 7 billion people. It, it's growing. And world Christianity represents about one-third of the human race, and half of world Christianity, so if you have a pie chart, you know, one big half of the pie chart is represented by the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, that, that, that's, that's also pretty astonishing. And so that's more than two, that's more than one billion Christians. The Roman Catholic Church, and I, I think a, a, as a Protestant and a Reformed theologian, who believes in the Protestant, uh, the, the providence of God, this gives me pause. You know, somehow the Reformation didn't prevail over world Christianity. Yeah, we we're not uh, in Kansas anymore, Toto. I mean, we're, we're not in the 16th century anymore. You know, uh, 500 years later, we, we look at world Christianity, and the Catholic Church not only still exists, it's the overwhelming majority of world Christianity. And see, their teaching doesn't conform to what I've been talking about, of how grace and faith and human works of cooperating with grace fit together. Yeah, I think the Reformation was absolutely essential. I think the message of the Reformation needs Protestants to continue to uphold it, but it's a minority position. It's even a minority position within what we would call Protestantism. Uh, the Reformed tradition that Presbyterians are a part of represents, a, according to this chart, you know, if you look this stuff up in uh, handbooks and so on, encyclopedias, you can get raw numbers. But it's very hard to get percentages. So, so I actually had a student of mine take a recent reference work and turn uh, the raw numbers uh, into a pie chart. So that this is kind of something you could only get from me or in this room, you know, to, to see the proportions. But the Reformed uh, Christians represent only 3.75% of world Christianity, over against Roman Catholicism, which is not only 50% of world Christianity today, it's the world's oldest and the world's largest institution. Well, I mean, if I believe in providence, which is a historic teaching of the Reformed tradition, th this, this puzzles me. You know, there, there's uh, something that is unexpected. I mean, it, it poses uh, a kind of serious challenge to the Reformation. I mean, I, I think, you know, maybe this small, you know, r relatively uh, slender sliver of the pie you know, is still really important. Maybe it's, maybe it's the little leaven that leavens the whole lump. That's what I would hope so. Uh, but uh, humanly speaking, 
So that would be an article of faith. Humanly speaking, we don't see it on this chart. And not only do we not see it, and this I think is just uh, endlessly troubling. Do you have any idea how many different Protestant denominations there are in the world today? You have a guess? Anyone want to guess? A thousand. How much? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's 43,000 and growing. Can, can you imagine that? I mean, this, this is in direct contradiction to the Lord's Prayer in John 17, that they might all be one. I mean, there should be only one Christian church. And, and there are people, I, I've met Eastern Orthodox monks. I, I met an Eastern Orthodox monk. He was an American, but he was on Mount Athos. And he became an Eastern Orthodox Christian because he thought uh, Eastern Orthodoxy represented the one and only true church. You, you find that uh, among the Orthodox. You, you find such a view. It's quite bracing if, if you go there from our culture. Uh, of course, there's a range of views. It's, everything's like a bell-shaped curve. But, but the kind of standard position among many of the Orthodox that I met when I was in Greece some years ago was that the Catholics are heretics and the Protestants are worse. Well, uh, of course, I don't accept that, but it's too close for comfort. You know? I mean, uh, it, 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 We'll just have to live with a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, the, the reformational view upheld mainly by Lutherans and Reformed Christians, which would include Presbyterians, uh, include the Heidelberg Catechism, have a view of how God's salvation in Christ works out that is significantly different, not only from the Roman Catholics, but also from other Protestants. So, so the reformational view maybe represents you know, at, at uh, the most generous, let's say, eight to 10% of world Christianity. So I mean, I, I, I don't think numbers should dissuade us. You know, I, I, I think uh, uh, it, it's only one side of the story, but still, uh, we have our work cut out for us. We, we need to do a better job of being Christians uh, by grace in order to uh, impress uh, even other Christians, let alone people outside the Christian faith, of uh, uh, the real meaning of the gospel as it's centered on Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Now, let me give you a formulation and it will be based somewhat on what we're reading here, just in question 56. Let me give you a formulation as a kind of a benchmark that will uh, uh, work as a sort of heading covering everything else that I want to say and everything else that we will find uh, on these questions in the Heidelberg Catechism. This was Martin Luther's way of summarizing the message of the gospel. And uh, rhetorically, he could vary it. You know, it, it every conceivable variation uh, he, he would uh, use at one point or another. But the simple version is, Christ is our righteousness and our life. 
Yet Christ alone is our righteousness and our life. You know, he may or may not say alone. He always means alone. But when it says here that God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment, and that this is somehow related, it's not explained how, uh, just explain that here in 56, I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, so there's a deep connection between the atonement, the saving significance of Christ in his death, the saving significance of Christ's death, atonement, and justification by grace through faith. So already the uh, hidden structure in this question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism involves some relationship that's not explained, it's not even made explicit, between what God has done in Christ apart from us, what he has done in the cross, what he has done in the atonement. I would say that's the objective work of grace. So you see, we say by grace through faith, part of what's involved there is God has done something not only apart from me in my life here and now, but God has done something for us in Christ there and then by grace that affects my life and our lives here and now. So that, uh, that lightning that precedes the thunder, you know, that, that objective work of grace that precedes the response of faith is not just uh, the work of grace in the present tense here and now, or, or the work of grace in the proclamation of the gospel here and now. It is that. But even more than that, more fundamentally, it's the work of grace in the atonement. It's the work of grace in the cross, and not the cross in isolation, but the cross as the fulfillment of the incarnation, and the cross as having been uh, revealed in its significance and overcome by uh, the bodily resurrection of Christ. So uh, it, it's always important not to... Uh, make things too separate. We have to, have to make the distinctions but see the unities as well. Uh, sometimes people want to emphasize the incarnation at the expense of the atonement or the atonement at the expense of the incarnation. Uh, the incarnation is the presupposition of the atonement. Jesus Christ could not be the savior of the world unless he were God incarnate. So he's, he's God incarnate who bears our sins and bears them away. The incarnation is the presupposition of the atonement, and the atonement is the fulfillment of the incarnation. And there'd be more than one way to work this out, but, but simply the resurrection then is the revelation of the saving significance of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of what I just set forth, of how the incarnation and the cross, how the incarnation and the atonement relate to one another. But incarnation, atonement, the cross, resurrection, these are all objective works of grace apart from us. So if we have this formula by grace through faith, 
by grace. It's not just, you know, that saved a wretch like me, amazing grace that comes in on my life in the present. It includes that, but it's grounded in the life history of Jesus Christ. It's grounded in his incarnation, death, and resurrection, and that's all the work of grace. Karl Barth, who I've spent a lot of time studying, says God has only one thing to say to us. And the one thing God has to say to us is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's yes to humankind in that objective work of grace. So prior to any response of faith, and, and here we have it in, in its own way, because of Christ's atonement, because what God has done by grace in Christ in spite of my sins. See, in some sense, and this is, this is right there in the wording of the Heidelberg Catechism as the questions fall out uh, in this immediate section we're going to be looking at, I am never going to cease being sinful in this present life. Not completely. The complicated question, the, the, the standard answer that we get in the Reformed Confessions is that uh, we are now free from the necessity of sinning. You know, the power of sin over us has been broken, but we continue to commit sins. We have to pray the Lord's Prayer uh, every day, you know, every week uh, in common worship. You know, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those uh, who trespass against us, as we forgive our debtors. Uh, we have that different translation of debts uh, and trespasses. You know, apparently, you know, the Reformed, the Presbyterians say debts, and the Episcopalians say trespasses. And uh, apparently it's because the, the Presbyterians were bankers and uh, uh, the Episcopalians were landowners. Uh, 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 but, but these are metaphors for you know, getting at you know, the neediness of sin. And that neediness of sin has already been dealt with apart from us in Christ. So, so that's the objective work of grace. So by grace, uh, through faith, because of Christ, and uh, his righteousness becomes ours. Now the, the catechism will go on to give us some clues about how that takes place. How is it that the righteousness of Christ becomes ours? Well, the, the, the simple answer is uh, by grace through faith. Uh, but since, since there's this objective aspect of grace related to the life history of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel, you know, prior to our knowing about it, prior to our hearing about it, prior to any response we may be moved to make about it, this, this puts the accent on grace as the precondition for the response of faith. And uh, there are mysteries involved at every point here. And you may have questions in your mind already. I'm going to actually close off my remarks in a moment and leave more time for questions this week than I have in the past. But before we do that, I want to focus on another important phrase. And if you look at 
question 60, or question 59. So I, I'm taking question 56 as the main idea, and the next questions now, 59 through 64, as commentary, as an explanation of what we found in that particular verse, having to do with the atonement and having to do with the righteousness of Christ. So the whole doctrine of the Reformation is about Christ's righteousness becoming ours. He is our righteousness and life. He himself. Part of what this means is he's not just the source of righteousness. It's not just that he's the means to the end, whereby the power of grace enters into our lives and begins to transform us so that we become righteous in ourselves. That's pretty much the Roman Catholic view, Christ as source, Christ as source and model. You know, when I'm reading Roman Catholic theologians on this and trying to figure them out, and they often tell me I don't quite get what they're about, so I, uh, I, I say these things to you in fear and trembling. You know, I, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to do justice to them. You know, I, I think uh, there are deep disagreements here, and uh, I, I don't want to create a caricature of them. But I, I find Roman Catholic theologians, uh, who I respect, pretty much operating with the idea that Christ is a source and a model, a model for us to imitate. So grace empowers us. Grace equips us to imitate Christ. And I think for the Catholic tradition and, and some Protestant traditions, the righteousness that becomes yours through imitation is saving righteousness. So it's, it's the righteousness as it were in us. It's the righteousness that exists on the existential or subjective side, you know, as related to our faithful response, our obedience, you know, our entering into imitation with Christ. The Reformation says, look, because of Christ's death, because of his atonement, uh, because of the grace of God, all your sins are covered, let's say, by the blood of Christ. All your sins are covered by the grace of God. Not only the sins that you committed before you came to faith, but all your sins, past, present, and future, because he is our righteousness and life, at, no matter where you slice it in your life, before you knew about it, after you were awakened to faith, and then in spite of your sins. So I, I did put this up and mentioned it last uh, week. The great Protestant word is nevertheless. You're not saved because of the righteousness that exists in you, in spite of your sinfulness. And this is, this is not a license to sin. It, it, it assumes, a, as it were, a good faith effort you know, that, that we're striving uh, to live in thankfulness and gratitude and obedience to God. Uh, but those sins will uh, continue. The sin that clings so closely, we read about in Hebrews, uh, that we have to pray to have forgiveness for every day. Nevertheless, the righteousness of Christ triumphs over all our sins 
before God, past, present, and future. So it's, it's the righteousness of Christ. And now we get this phrase in question 59. And uh, I talked about this a little bit last time, but I want to revisit it. What does this, what does it, what good does it do you, however, to believe all this? And the answer is, in Christ, I am right with God. That's, that's what the translation here says. And heir to life everlasting. So here we have both righteousness and life. But the English translation is not quite what we read in the German original. And I mentioned this last time. Uh, the German is gerecht vor Gott, not gerecht uh, mit Gott. You know, mit would be right with God. So the, the translators here are trying to make it a little easier to understand, you know, uh, you know not raise questions in, in people's minds. Uh, I, I think my concern that it needs to be not just right with God, but righteous before God, you know, for God, not just mit God. You know, I'll, I'll give you question. Uh, but later on in, in these questions, it does talk about the righteousness of Christ again and our being righteous before God. So righteousness is the thing, not just being right with God. That, that's not wrong, but it's, it's kind of watered down. But uh, I just want to call uh, attention, and then I'll, I'll break for questions, to, the, to at least begin to get at the significance of this important phrase, in Christ. Uh, there are some interpreters who think in Christ means just the same thing as Christ in us. So, so they don't see any distinction between our being in Christ and Christ being in us. Uh, I, I think there's a unity. I think those two ideas are inseparable. If we're in Christ, Christ is also in us. But they don't have quite the same meaning, quite the same significance. Uh, and we are in Christ by grace. We are included in Christ. As it will say later on in the Catechism, we're incorporated into Christ. We're made members of his body. We're made one with him. It's a very mysterious and deep term in Christ. And it's not the same as Christ in my heart, Christ in us. Those two ideas are inseparable, but we're in Christ and covered by his righteousness, regardless of how well things are going in uh, our subjective or existential lives here and now. So, so whatever sins we may continue to commit, they're still overridden and covered by the righteousness of Christ. So that to say Christ is our righteousness means that in him we are righteous. In union and communion with Christ, by grace through faith, we are righteous. And we're righteous in spite of any ongoing sin and sinfulness in our lives. So this phrase, in Christ, is really crucial. And other traditions want to put more of an accent on grace in us, or Christ in us, and therefore our uh, cooperation. They, they, they put more uh, emphasis, as it were, on the thunder than on the lightning. But the Reformation puts all the emphasis on the lightning, on the work of grace, including us by grace and then by faith in Christ in such a way that is decisive. So that for uh, Calvin, as I was mentioning to someone earlier uh, before we started, justification 
by which we are righteous in Christ, uh, by grace through faith, takes place instantaneously with faith. It takes place once and for all. And in a way that can't be undone, and because it's the righteousness of Christ, it's a perfect righteousness. Luther said, partial righteousness does not justify. See, I mean, that condition that makes communion with God possible is a perfect and complete righteousness. That's why in the Gospel of John, for example, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's a perfect lamb. It's a spotless lamb. It represents the need for a perfect righteousness. You know, we'll, we'll explain uh, next time how uh, Christ fulfills the law both uh, positively and negatively uh, for our sakes and in our place, the element of substitution. This week, I just want to emphasize participation. In Christ means participation. It means union and communion uh, with Christ by virtue of the grace of Christ so that we are in Christ. We are made members of his body by grace through faith so that uh, in Christ I am righteous before God. That would be a better translation uh, for the, the first part of question 59 here. Uh, and see, it's, it's in Christ more than in us. See, almost any other tradition beside the Lutheran and the Reformed would want to bring in Christ in us and Christ's work in us so that we have to be righteous in ourselves in order uh, to receive salvation. But the free gift of God, uh, the free grace of God, includes us in Christ in spite of ourselves uh, as nothing but a free gift apart from any merit and apart from any works, works of the law, works of love. So that, that's, uh, that's the beginning of Reformation 101.